Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this, um, these people that are meeting tonight, God, and I pray for this building, this facility, and the church that meets here Sunday morning, God. I thank you, Lord, that they have been so generous and hospitable to allow us to meet here at night, God. I pray that you would bless them. You'd bless um, the pastor and his wife, God, that you would just renew them, give them strength, give them vision, Lord. Give them encouragement, Father God. Let them um, experience your blessing and your presence on their life in a way they've never experienced before, God, that they would go the next level with knowing how much you love them, how much you're pleased with them, God. I pray that you would increase the church that meets here, the Nazarene church that meets here on Sunday morning, Lord, in such a way that they know that something new has happened, that you're going to touch them and grow them and um, absolutely meet them here with your presence, God, because you love them so much. I just pray for a great blessing on this place, God. And I thank you tonight, Lord, for this message. I thank you, Lord, that um, you really downloaded it to me, that I have a, an excitement and a passion about um, sharing it, Lord. I pray that it would exactly hit the heart that needs this, Lord, that our hearts will be open to hear this message, and that for the person or people that need to hear this, Lord, it would just, it would go in deep, and they'd take hold of this, Lord, and be able to just apply this to their life and experience what you've got for them, God. I just thank you for how much you are for us and how much you want to um, increase us and grow us and bless us and make us a light to the world, Lord. Let us grab hold of that and just believe it and partner with it in our hearts, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, you know, as this is an exciting message for me. Sometimes, you know, some messages are, eh. They're like, okay, and then other messages are like, ooh, I really want to deliver this. This is one of those, ooh, I really want to deliver this. It's exciting to me because it ministers to me. The thing that um, I've experienced, I don't know about you, Bob, that sometimes when you sit down to write a sermon or put a message together, you're like, just getting to the table is the hardest part, you know, or getting to the desk is the hardest part. But once you start doing it, it starts to flow out of you, and it gives you life even to put it down on paper. Does that ever happen to you? And I get real excited when I start to see something come together. And so tonight I want to talk to you about something called spiritual intelligence or spiritual quotient. I thought quotient was harder to say, so I called it spiritual intelligence. And it's, you know, like a lot of my messages, I get them from different speakers. And the, the topic of this comes from Chris Vallotton. I was listening to a podcast of his a couple months ago, and he's talking about spiritual intelligence or spiritual quotient. And I'm like, man, that's a really good idea. I want to talk about that. And then I got a little bit more of the message this last week in my Bible study. But um, I want to talk about where this comes from. You know, it used to be that IQ, um, in, um, intelligence quotient, was the way uh, people were measured by how successful they were or what they accomplished was, what is your IQ, right? And some, um, it, the average IQ is 100. 140 is considered high or genius. And here are a couple of examples of people with high IQs. Albert Einstein, of course, 160. Beethoven, 165. Charles Dickens, 180 IQ. Okay, here's one for you, Chris. You'll like this. Lady Gaga, 160. Benjamin Franklin, 160. Bill Gates, 180. Stephen Hawking, 160. Steve Jobs, 160. Those are pretty famous people, right? And we can believe that they have a high IQ because they seem like they've really um, accomplished things, right? But lately, there's been a, um, a new development, and it's called EQ. Now it's not all about your IQ. It's about your EQ, right? And EQ is a little bit harder to measure because it doesn't, you know, you're not just measuring what you know and, and um, 
you know, how you can answer tests, but they look at different people and see the success in their life in terms of how you relate to people. So EQ is um, your ability to understand other people, what motivates them, and how to work cooperatively with them. So some examples of people with high IQ, some Fortune 500 CEOs, EQ, sorry, EQ, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, not hard to believe, right? Warren Buffett, um, John Donahue, he's the CEO of eBay, Howard Schultz, he's the CEO of Starbucks. Now, again, you think that EQ, um, we tend to think, some people tend to think EQ is better than IQ because you're more successful with people, more su successful in life. But the thing about EQ is it's also um, not always a measurement of eternal success, right? It's just another type of skill or talent. Because <laughs> um, Bezos, Jeff Bezos, is going through a divorce. At, uh, from, he's been married for 25 years. Now he's having an affair with a starlet in Hollywood. He's been exposed by the, Holly, by the uh, National Enquirer, and now he's experiencing some fruit of his choices. So having high IQ or EQ didn't necessarily bode well in his relationship, right? Emotional quotient. Emotion quotient. Sorry if I didn't say that. Warren Buffett. I really like Warren Buffett because I like to do stocks. He's called the Oracle of Omaha, and he has made more millionaires in the city of Omaha than like around the whole United States because of his, um, his um, mutual fund that he's done. But Warren Buffett has a couple eccentricities as well. While he stayed married to his wife of 54 years, they separated in 1977, and she picked another woman for him that moved in to the house that he shared with his wife. So she moved to California, his wife moved to California, she picked a companion for him to move into their old home, and they kind of had a triangular relationship until his wife's death. That's a little bit weird. Can I say that? He was a, and now listen, this is one of the wealthiest men in the whole world, is Warren Buffett. So he's definitely got some success going, right? He's got something going for him, but not maybe in that arena. He was a Presbyterian most of his life, and now he's an agnostic. <laughs> Howard Schultz, the um, CEO of Starbucks, he um, has been very successful at Starbucks, whether you like it or not. He, does a, he has a heart and a compassion for his, um, his employees. Do you know that they all, everyone in Starbucks has access to health care, whether you're full-time or part-time? And you also can go to online college for free, Starbucks. He's got a heart. He's got a heart for people. Yet there's some weird eccentricities with him as well. I'm not going to go into them right now. But he, he has got some weird things about veterans. And Chris would know. You want to say it, Chris? I don't even know. Oh, yeah. He would rather hire um, illegal immigrants than veterans. There's some weird things that he that he goes to because of what some traumas that have happened in his life, and yet he's a very successful CEO. But my point to you is that you can have high IQ and you can have high EQ, and there's still going to be some issues in your life, possibly some eternal issues. You know, um, Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world, again, you know, they say that his um, Gates Foundation has single-handedly eradicated AIDS in Africa 
because how much money he poured into that foundation and then his passion for Africa, yet he's agnostic. We don't know where he's going to end up, right? Um, Steve Jobs was a Buddhist. Incredibly, incredibly genius person. Eternally, I'm not really sure where he's at, right? So you can have high IQ, you can have high EQ. That doesn't guarantee you success in life, right? So I'm like, where does our success come from? And so this is where the idea of spiritual intelligence comes into, or spiritual quotient. It's hard to define this because unlike IQ or EQ, it's not something that you can make a test and have people take a test and then find out where they fall, right? Spiritual intelligence is more about a relationship with God. It's more about right relationship with God. It's more about divine wisdom. The person that I think about when I think about the Bible who really sought after spiritual intelligence was um, Solomon. Do you remember when Solomon, God came to Solomon and said, what do you want? Ask me, do you want riches? Do you want power? Do you want wisdom? What do you want? And I'll give it to you. And what did Solomon say? Give me wisdom. And you know what happened after he got wisdom? God said, because you've chosen wisdom, now you're going to get power and wealth as well. Because you chose the better thing, you're going to get it all. Now, Solomon was considered one of the wisest people in the Bible. And whenever you think of wisdom, even the secular world thinks of Solomon, right? I mean, he's, he's such a um, well-known figure that even people who aren't Christians or don't know the Bible think of Solomon and it, and it um, equates to wisdom. And he was also rich. He had he had Solomon's temple is supposed to be incredibly beautiful. Now, that doesn't mean that Solomon was always wise. He had 600 wives, and that can't be very wise, can it? And 600 wives can't also make you super rich. I feel like that would deplete your bank account a lot if you had 600 wives, right? right. <laughs> but he did write Proverbs. He did write um, um, one of the best books of the Bible for wisdom, for us to get wisdom. So we know that he did have access to wisdom, but he didn't make all the right choices sometimes. Can we say that? Is that fair? <laughs> Chris Valton says, I fear we've exchanged the wisdom of God for the wisdom of men. The world has many problems. The Lord has the answers. It is through relationship and deep intimacy with God that the answers we are searching for will be found. I think that's a good statement about spiritual intelligence. It's about a relationship with God. So if, if you want to, you can go to this in the Bible. It's, I'm going to be reading out of 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to study the life of Naaman um, today. Naaman was a, um, a Gentile and an enemy of Israel. And I'm just going to read the chapter and then we'll kind of go through it, okay? Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord, and just a little lesson here, whenever you see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the formal name for Yahweh. Yahweh was the God of Israel, but the Bible writers never wanted to use the word Yahweh, so they would replace it with the word Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital. One thing that we're going to come back to at the end of this that you need to remember, and this is, this is what I love. I just love, love, love the Old Testament. It's so jam-packed with cool stuff. But the major theme, one of the major themes in the Old Testament is God teaching the people of the earth that there's only one God. 
There's not a whole bunch of idols all over. Because people in the ancient Near East and everywhere saw gods everywhere. They saw idols everywhere. And one of the main themes of the Old Testament is God trying to say, there's only one God and I am he. There's only one God and I am he. And he's constantly working this theme out in Israel and the nations around Israel. So this is what we're going to talk about tonight a little bit. So this is important. Because it's important to understand that this foreign man Naaman was being used by Yahweh, not a God of his land, to bring favor to the uh, king of Syria. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Syria had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl had, of, from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Syria replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. That equates to 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. Does anyone know how much an ounce of gold is going for these days or what gold's going for? Is that right? What's your last, what's your name? Ryan knows. How much is it, Ryan? For an ounce? Okay, so if we were to calculate that into pounds, that's a lot of money. Okay, okay, let's say that. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And just a, a, again, a little context here. Syria is the enemy of Israel. Syria has raided Israel and taken captive a Israelite girl. So what we have here is a stronger, powerful country saying to a weaker a country and leader, listen, I'm going to send you somebody and I want you to heal them. Just like that. Not please, not thank you, not hey, can you do this? Not as equals, but as someone more powerful saying to you, I'm sending you this person and I want you to heal them. All right? <clears throat> as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So immediately the king of Israel is in fear that somehow this is a ruse or a trick because he's not God. How is he going to? Leprosy was a death sentence in those days. It was a death sentence. And this other king is asking him to, to heal Naaman. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? 
So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. So I, in, for me, this story is packed full of lessons for us of how to get from a place of unbelief to a place of healing and belief and power in our lives. So I just want to unpack this and go through it. Is that cool? Um, let's just talk about who Naaman was. Naaman was, he was a great man. He was honorable. He delivered Syria from her foes. He was used by Yahweh, actually, to bring honor to Syria, the enemy of Israel, a foreign nation, a Gentile nation. Yet somehow, he was used by Yahweh to bring glory to this nation. How weird. Mighty man of valor, but at the same time, he still had leprosy. And if you remember, leprosy in those days was not just a physical disorder, it was a social disorder. It was contagious, and it was a death sentence. So whenever you had leprosy, you actually had to um, separate yourself from the culture. In Israel, you had to walk around and say, unclean, unclean, I'm unclean. You had to call it out so that people would know and not become infected. In Jesus' day, they had leper colonies where you went and lived in a separate colony so you would not, um, you would not um, contaminate either um, religiously or physically people around you. So this is the kind of disease that he has. But the other thing about leprosy is it can remain dormant in your lives, in your life from 5 to 15 years. So when you, by the time you contract leprosy, it can hide in your body, in your internal organs, and not be expressed for 5 to 15 years outwardly. <clears throat> and I think what we can take from this is it's possible that we could also be what's called a functional leper. We can have leprosy in our lives, inside of us, and still function in a way that nobody can see. And I see that when we talk about those people that have the high IQ and the high EQ. I look at them as functioning lepers. They have a spiritual disease inside of them, yet they're functioning. And even in, in the eyes of the world, somewhat successful like Naaman, yet there's a death sentence on the inside of them. There's still a sickness that leads to death on the inside of them. And anybody can have that. It's possible to be a functional lepros, a leper. The thing about leprosy, though, it's a disease that leads to death. Without Jesus, we have a disease that leads to death. It's called sin, right? The message of the Bible and of salvation is one of cleansing us from our internal spiritual leprosy, if you will. So the first thing I think we have to do for spiritual intelligence is say, do I, am I a functional leper? Do I have a disease, a spiritual disease inside of me? And if I do, how do I become healed of this, right? The first key to becoming healed of our leprosy is faith, all right? So let's go back to the story. Nathan, possibly Nathan, or somebody in his army, has attacked Israel, carried off this little girl. Now, we don't know how old she is, but in my translation, it says little girl. Carried off this little girl, and now she's serving in the household of Naaman. Um, it's possible that her parents were killed. She's not living in her hometown. It would be like if one of our kids 
was captured, like in the story of Daniel, and taken over to Russia. And now they're serving the enemy's household in Russia. And yet, when this little girl sees that her master has leprosy, she says to her mistress, if only my master would go and see Elisha, he would be healed. So what I see here is that this little girl has faith, not only faith for herself, but she has faith for her enemy. She has a kind of faith that um, doesn't hold a grudge. And she has the right to hold a grudge, if you ask me. Being deported from Israel, serving her enemy, her enemy's, um, you know, uh, general. If anybody has a right to say, you know what, I hope he dies of leprosy. I hope he never gets healed. I'm not going to tell him about the man of God who lives in Israel. Here's this little girl who says, you know what, if he'd only go to Israel, he would be healed. So she's got faith for herself, and she's got faith for her enemy, and she's got forgiveness for her enemy. I think that's the kind of faith we have, have to have. Jesus said when the children came to him and the disciples were trying to pull them away, he said, don't let them go. He said, these children make up the kingdom of God. They're, you have to have faith like a child. And I think it's, you know, there's children out there that are abused by their parents, and yet when you go to um, remove them from their abusive parents, they don't want to leave. They have a childlike ability to forgive people who have hurt them. And they have a childlike faith. And I think if we're going to have faith, we don't have just regular faith. We have that kind of faith. Faith that forgives and has faith for our enemies. That's a different kind of faith, you guys. I think that's, I think that's a step one. The second way that we access spiritual intelligence is we have to decide to be obedient. We have to obey. You know, Naaman was proud. He was a powerful man, and he was a rich man. We know he had 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. And Naaman was going to have a transactional, he was going to do a transactional thing. He was going to go to Israel, he's going to find this man of God, and he was going to do a transaction. I'm going to pay for my miracle. Here's all this money. I'm a rich man. I deserve this. I'm going to buy what I want. And when he got there, he came up with horses and chariots displaying who he was. And when he got there, Elisha was like, I got nothing for you. I'm not going to come out to see you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to send out my servant because your power and your wealth don't impress me. And I'm not taking any of your gifts. And what did that do? Naaman was mad. It says he, he went away in a rage because he thought he deserved better than that. One of, the, one of the main reasons I think people stay as functional lepers is they're too proud to do what God's called them to do. How many of us know people that probably need to go to counseling or AA or celebrate recovery or some kind of healing thing and they won't do it? Because why? Because they're too proud. They don't want to be known as the person who goes to counseling. They don't want to be the person, person that says, I need help in this area. I don't have it all together. Am I right? I love it, Joe. I love it when you shake your head like that. Thank you. They don't want to take responsibility. Sometimes I also think that we miss out on what God wants to do in our lives because we think if something is simple, it can't be supernatural. 
we expect miracles to be flashy and spectacular and a one-time thing. We don't really want to have to do that, eat, that thing that requires just obedience that doesn't seem realistic to our intellect. Does that make sense? Sometimes we depend so much on the way we think things should be, and we're so proud in our intellect or our experience that we don't want to do what God tells us to do because we don't understand it and it doesn't make sense. How sensible was it to go to the Jordan and dip seven times in the river? Does that make sense to anybody? And why seven times? We know seven is the number of perfection in the Bible, but still, why seven times? Right? I can understand why he's like, I don't get it. But I think sometimes us as Christians, we want to... um, we want to understand everything that God's doing. We're like, I'm not going to do it unless I understand it. Sometimes the understanding comes after you do it. Am I right? Sometimes spiritual intelligence is all about obedience. It's like saying, you know what, God, greater are you than me. Your ways are higher than my ways. If you want me to dip seven times in the Jordan, I'm going to dip seven times in the Jordan. You know, it also reminds me of another story um, when Jesus did change the water into wine. How sensible did that seem? Take water, pour it into another jar, and then it's going to become wine. And when did it happen? Did it happen when you poured the water into the jar, or did it happen when you poured the water out of the jar into the person's cup? When did the miracle actually happen? And did it make sense? It didn't make any sense. And yet the, the, Mary said, just do what he tells you to do. She just says, I, I believe in him. I don't care how crazy it sounds. Do what he tells you to do, and it was the best wine they had ever tasted. I think that we miss out on what God has for us because we're not willing to do what looks foolish, what looks too too simple, and what doesn't make sense. But we're especially unwilling to do something that looks foolish. We're especially unwilling to do something when our pride says, that's beneath me. Why would I ever do something like that? I have 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, Why would I go wash in the super dirty Jordan that runs through Israel when I could go back to Damascus and be in the clean river? Because the clean, doesn't clean make sense? Like clean's going to clean the dirt off, but why would I go into dirty Jordan, which is dirty, to clean off my dirty skin? That doesn't make any sense, right? We miss out when we think we know what's going on. And this is what was happening with Naaman. He got mad. He's like, why should I do that? That doesn't make any sense. I think the other thing, too, that I think about this is he had to do it seven times. You know, I was talking to Bob about this in the back. You know, what if he went down and he's like, okay, I'll do it one time. It's so stupid, but I'll do it one time. And he dipped one time and he came out, nothing happened. He's like, well, I'll, I'll try one more time. And he went down the second time and he, and he came back out and nothing happened. What if by the fourth or fifth time he got so disgusted he just quit? He would miss his miracle because he was questioning God's timing, right? Sometimes God says, I want you to obey me when you don't understand my timing. I have a different timing than you, and I want you to obey me when you don't understand it. So it's not about the foolishness of it. It may look okay to us, but we're like, we want it right away. We're a microwave society. Why should I do it seven times? That makes no sense to me. Sometimes we miss out on God because we... we Question his timing. 
The fourth thing for spiritual intelligence is surrender. Surrender and obedience are kind of close, right? Obedience and surrender, once you decide to obey, it's a form of surrender, right? So Naaman finally surrendered and bathed himself in the Jordan. (laughs) I've seen a lot of people go halfway with the Lord. You know, they might be raised in church, or they might feel that tug inside their heart where they want to um, be known as a Christian or at the very least be known as spiritual or a good person. But but when the rubber hits the road, they don't want to do what we like to call bend the knee. They don't want to bend the knee. They don't want to say, I surrender my life to you. That's a really big deal with spiritual intelligence. It's probably the most important thing. When you think of all these things, and each one leads up to that kind of surrender, right? But if we're going to actually be a Solomon to our world, if we're going to walk in the wisdom of the Lord, it's going to require radical surrender, not just a little bit of surrender. It's going to require the kind of surrender where you put aside your fear of man, And you say, I don't care what I look like. Okay, God, you've called me to go be a missionary and sell everything. Like when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell everything that you have and follow me. Why could he not do that? Because he could not surrender his lifestyle to the Lord. Right? I think spiritual intelligence requires sometimes, um, how do I say this? Risking looking foolish to the world. And that's a big deal. I think that keeps a lot of people from even going to the next level of the Lord with the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes they see the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and they don't understand them. So they say, well, that can't be for me and it can't be real. And if I do it, I'm going to look foolish in front of other people. But I think what happens, you guys, is when we let that fear of foolishness stop us, we prevent ourselves from fully surrendering to God in every arena, even in that arena of pride, because that really is just pride when we're afraid of what people think about us, right? Here's the thing. After, this is so cool, after Naaman, did, he finally did, he, you know, his, his servant said, just do it. Just go and do it. If they ask you to do something flashy and spectacular, you do it. Just do this thing. So he went down. He dipped seven times. And what happened? The miracle came on him. And I want you to know something, you guys. Jesus said that Naaman, a Gentile, was the only person healed of leprosy in Israel of that time. He says in Luke, he says, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Naaman, and Naaman was the only one who was healed. What does that say to you? That says to you there must not have been very many obedient Israelites in that time. And yet God says, if you'll obey me, if you'll surrender, I don't care who you are. I don't care how far away you are from me. I don't care about the level of your leprosy. I'm here to heal you. And I think it's interesting that the Israelites themselves could not be healed, but Naaman, a foreigner, was healed in that time because of his surrender, his surrender to what he didn't understand. 
but it changed his whole life, you guys. After he was um, healed, he went back to Elisha. And it says, when he returned to the man of God with all his company, they came and, and came and stood before him. He said, behold now, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. Now, how has everything changed? Now he's, not a, now he's a servant approaching Elisha. He's not a powerful man coming with, man, with men and chariots and gold and silver. He's saying, and here, I, have a, I just want to serve you. Here's a gift. I'm not trying to buy anything from you. I've already got it. But now I just want to give you a gift. And he goes, and now I know there's no other God in the world except Yahweh. And he, you guys, that's the point that God's getting at this whole time. He's trying to teach people. There's no other God. It's just me. It's just Yahweh. So now Naaman's completely changed his posture, and now he says, I'm ready to worship. So the fifth point is, if you want to have spiritual intelligence, surrender leads to worship. Surrender leads to gratitude. Back in those times, I love this, you guys. It's just so cool. Land. Here's, here's how it was in the, in the ancient Near East. Every country had particular land, and every country had a God associated with that land. They were associated. That's why we call things, that's why we call Israel the Holy Land. We even say it now. Land has a particular meaning. And in the Old Testament, land was associated with all the different idols and all the different gods in the, in the, um, in the area because they all thought there were different gods, right? So what happens is Naaman's going to go back and live with um, his people in Syria, and he says, okay, I'm going to, here you won't, because Elisha wouldn't take any of the gifts. He said, here's all my gifts. Elisha says, I don't want any of your stuff. This is a free gift from the Lord. We're not having a transaction. This is not a transactional deal. Healing is a free gift from God, so I'm not taking anything. So Naaman says, okay, can I take two donkeys worth, whatever I can put on my donkeys worth of land, back to my city so I can worship Yahweh back in Syria. Because he realized that land was associated to Yahweh. And he says, now I'm so committed to serving Yahweh back where I live, I'll take your land with me and I have a little bit of Israel in Syria. Isn't that so cool? I think that's such a neat thing because he's like, I'm committed now. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to serve any other people or any other gods but Yahweh, but I need, I, need these, I need this land so I can build a little altar where I live and I can serve Yahweh there. And Elisha said, go in peace and do that. He gave him his blessing. Isn't that so cool, you guys? I just, that makes my heart so happy. So here's my conclusion. It's that Luke 4.27 thing. You know, Jesus was in um, his hometown and he tried to do a lot of miracles there. And he wasn't able to do a lot of miracles because his hometown didn't have a lot of faith. And so he said, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the times of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And he was, he was referencing the fact that no one in his hometown could be healed because of their lack of faith. And he was comparing it to Naaman in the time of Israel. And here's what I want to say to you guys. We can... Um, We can be in the company of other Christians and still be functionally a leper. 
or other people can be functionally a leper. Just because they're Christians or go to church doesn't mean that they're being healed of the leprosy inside of them, all right? We have to choose that for ourselves. It's not about the people that we associate with or that we, it's not about the Bible studies we go to. It's not about the church we go to. It's not about the Christians we hang around with. We have to be our own Naaman, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not the people we hang out with. And so the choice that we have before us is, and here's the thing I like about spiritual intelligence to you guys. IQ can't really be changed. You're born with it. It's, it is what it is. You're either 100, 120, 140, 160, whatever you are. It's not something you can much study to improve. EQ, maybe a little bit. You can study, maybe you can like learn some skills to be a little more social and understand social cues. We have, there's like Asperger's people sometimes take classes like how to make eye contact and stuff like that, you know. But at the same time, you kind of either have it or you don't. That is not what spiritual intelligence is. Spiritual intelligence is available to everybody. And you get to level up over and over and over depending on how much you choose it. Depending on how much you want it, you get to have more and more and more and more of it. But it's not affected by the people around you. It's not who you hang out with. It's what you decide to do. It's what you choose. It's how you bend the knee, if you will. And so I guess that's encouraging to me because I believe spiritual intelligence is what we want if we're going to be successful in this world. And I don't, I don't um, measure success with wealth and power and all that. But here's, and this may be, maybe this is heretical, okay? But I think I have a, a really good, um, I think I have a good basis for this, both in Solomon and in the New Testament. Solomon went after wisdom. He got wisdom, power, and wealth. But he went after wisdom, get power and wealth. Those were add-ons, if you will. In the New Testament, it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus says, I've come to bring life and life abundant. It's for freedom you've been set free. You know, here's a message it says to me. You go after the right thing. You go after God and the relationship, and everything else is taken care of. All your power, all your wealth, whatever that looks like in a godly way in your life, is added back to you, all right? It's not your first thing, but it's your add-on blessing. Does that make sense? And so when I say, hey, let's go after spiritual intelligence, to me, that's the whole enchilada. It's everything. It's your influence with people. It's your blessing in finances. It's how you affect the kingdom. It's everything. But I believe these things. It's got faith, obedience, surrender, and worship. Those are your keys to spiritual intelligence. And if we want the whole enchilada, we're going to be like Solomon. We're going to go after our spiritual intelligence. Is that cool? All right. That's, and that's my passionate message. Oh, pray with me. Karen Lash cooked for us tonight so you know how delicious that is. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Um, God, I just do thank you that you want us to have the whole enchilada, especially at Saturday Night Supper Club. You want us to have everything that you've got for us, every blessing. You want prosperity in every way, God. But we pray, Lord, that we would learn to surrender fully our lives to you in every area of our life, even when it looks dumb or stupid and we have fear of man and fear of failure and all that stuff inside of us, that we would surrender our lives fully to you, God, and know that um, it's through relationship and intimacy with you that our deepest desires are fulfilled, God. And I just thank you that you love us, that you're continually drawing us to you. You're continu continually healing the leprosy inside of us, God. 
And that even, even when we are angry and we don't believe and we're far away, God, you're always chasing after us, pulling us close to you, Lord. I just thank you that you love us more than we could ever know. And I just ask that you bless our time together, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.